318, Chapter 18. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 318, Surprises. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Hi there. It is I, Heather, the person you were expecting to hear from. And I have such an awesome chapter for you today. However, before we can get to that, I have actually another really awesome thing to share with you. Uh, If you are of a certain age... You may recall a song from a band named Queen, a song called Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, I know. Anybody who saw Wayne's World, which again, dates me, uh, you will recall some very fun hijinks in a car listening to Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Well, now you can learn string theory. And I mean learn string theory at the level of Brian Greene, if you watch this one master's student's project, an acapella musical project that he put together while he was finishing his master's thesis. And it is an acapella, Bohemian Rhapsody, the best I've ever heard, which also has the lyrics changed in order to teach you string theory. So it's just too awesome. I put it in the show notes. You will just fall over laughing. It's fantastic. The other news, of course, is that my book is coming out. Uh, Let's see. When this podcast goes live, the countdown will have started and the book will be coming out on Tuesday, October 1st. That means if you have pre-ordered the book, you will get a copy, a digital copy of the Rosie Firestarters sock, uh, that pattern, not an actual sock, but the pattern to the sock, knit sock, uh, top down knit sock. You'll get a copy of that. You'll get a copy of the book, the digital version. The print copies have to get here. Then I have to sign them. Then I have to ship them out. I am very excited about this, though. Now, if you do not pre-order, but then you decide, oh, well, gosh, you know, now I can think I kind of do want to get that book for that teenager in my life or for a friend who likes young adult literature, you can always pick up a copy of the book at the shop at crafting-a-life.com dot com slash shop. I know it's pretty boring. And uh, and the book is for sale there. It will also be on Amazon. And if all goes right, it will be everywhere. Now, I have everywhere online. And I've learned a couple of really interesting things about book sales. If you have independent authors who you like, who you like to support, or podcasters who have books out or patterns in books, and they are digital copies that also have 
print versions. This is what I've learned. If you are somebody who shops at Barnes & Noble, go to the Barnes & Noble website, order a print copy of the book, have it shipped to your local store. If enough people do this, what happens is the local store starts carrying the book. So knitting books from independent knitting authors who you like, this is the way to get their books into your local stores. You can also go and you can request books from your library and they'll go out and purchase them. And libraries are, of course, near and dear to my heart. So there will be knit-alongs. There will be uh, invitational shawl pattern designing. Uh, if you read the book and are inspired to design a shawl, please feel free to sell your shawl pattern or give it away if you so desire and to um, link to it from my site, from the Grounded site, because that's where people who like the book will be showing up. So you should be sharing your stuff there. It just seems right. Now I've gotten emails from some people saying, okay, you say it's a YA book. What does a YA stand for? What is a YA book? YA books are young adult books. This is Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games, books that are written for tweens and teens, but more and more these days seem to be being enjoyed by their moms. And of course, if you're the daughter and mother combo, having a book that you can talk about together is not a bad thing. I am pretty happy because my son, who is now 13, he read it when he was 12. He's now 13. He just handed off a galley copy to a friend of his who we think is an excellent judge of character, and he's loving the book. So I'm also pretty excited because I'm getting the boy seal of approval on this, the 13-year-old boy seal of approval. And uh, I think that's kind of important because it's not, you know, it's not uh, my main, my main girl, I hope, comes across as kind of feisty. She is her own person. And, uh, and to have guys like a book with a main character like that makes me very happy about the guys and about the book. So that's all that newsy news, I think. Uh, oh, I wanted to let you know, I also have a link on the show notes for a place called stamps.com. I know there are other podcasters who get paid for advertising from them. I am not one of them. I'm just really excited because the, the thought of having to go and stand in line with, you know, hundreds of book packages to send them out on, uh, on, on the days when I start sending out the pre-orders and the signed copies and the, all that uh, struck fear into my heart. And my husband said, you know, I hear these other podcasters talking about stamps.com. Why didn't you go look? I now have a link. If you are somebody who has to do a lot of shipping or even an, enough shipping and mailing that it's kind of annoying for you to have to get to the post office, this might be a solution for you. And if you use the link on my show notes to start your subscription and then sign up for it, I get a little bonus back in my subscription and the world is a good and happy place. Uh, take a look though. They have some really interesting videos that are kind of broad overviews. And then they have lots of videos on YouTube on, on, on YouTube on how to use the service. And I'm really quite impressed. I suppose this is only for people who live in the United States because it's the United States Postal Service. Uh, that's a great idea, though. I don't know if other countries are doing it. I hope they are. I really hope they are, because it's a great idea. And last couple of little newsy bits. These are the things that have come to me on Monday, because quite honestly, I had to record in a hurry this week. My husband's birthday 
is October 10th. You are welcome to send him birthday greetings <laughs> this year. It'll scare the bejujus out of him if you do. But I'll flood his inbox. If you want his email, email me, heather at craftlit.com, and I will send you his, his email, or I'll just forward emails from you. He's born, this is kind of cool, he's born 1010. I'm 5'5". Five five. We thought our older son was going to be 6'6". Six six. He turned out to be 6'13". So, so much for that run. But uh, the husband has a big birthday this year. And if all goes as planned, when this goes live, our airplane will have touched down and we will be spending a marvelous birthday weekend with his, with his brother and father and cousins and... Uh, a different cousin, there are many cousins, a different cousin is going to be watching the children so that we can go do this kind of adult thing for his birthday. And this is all due to the generosity of my brother-in-law, who is just awesome. So I should be winging my way across the country or having just landed when you hear this. But what that means is I have to get a whole lot done before I can leave a whole lot because I did get a paying job, which is great. You know, the the teaching credentialing process is going through, but that takes a long time. It takes a long time to get positions and all that. So while that's happening, I managed to get some curriculum work, which is great. But now I have to do the curriculum work on a deadline. So that's kind of scary. But just today, two things got posted. One was a knitting video. It's like a history of knitting video from uh, one of our listeners who posted it on the Facebook page. If you guys are on Facebook, but you haven't found Craftlet on Facebook, there are two things going on. One is a general Craftlet fan page, which is just kind of where the the podcast automatically uploads there so you can listen to it via Facebook. If that is easier for you, that's just one more way to listen. And of course, if you like Facebook, it just ups our stats and does all sorts of good things for us. Same thing with Grounded. If you like Grounded or you go to the uh, groundedseries.com page, at the very, very bottom, there's a little like or recommend or something like that Facebook thing and a little number tally. The higher that number goes, the better for me and the book and ultimately the podcast and everything because the more anything about Grounded is a benefit, the more the benefit is towards the podcast because then I don't have to run out and get a teaching job tomorrow. So there's the Craftlet fan page, I guess. They don't really call it that anymore, but it's the Craftlet page. And then there's a Craftlet group page. And the group page is cool because the group page you can post on, not just responding to things that I post, but actually post things yourself. And some of you are really quite active and post the coolest stuff there. Now, the weird thing is you have to ask to join that page. I don't know why. It's not a setting that I set. I haven't been able to unset it. It's been like that since the beginning. I don't get it. But one way or another, a bunch of us are able to add you. So it shouldn't take very long during the course of a day for somebody to get on there and, and add you to the group. And then you can post cool things you find on Facebook or out on the web or whatever and share them with the other 
Craftlet people who are on that page. So this knitting video is like the history of knitting in the UK. And I've only been able, I haven't had a whole lot of time. I've only been able to watch a little bit of it, but whoa, cool. So I'm sharing that link with you so you can take a look at it too. And uh, don't forget the Halos of Hope podcaster throwdown competition is on and people are knitting and posting things as craft lit hats. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for letting us represent and uh, spread, spread the good goodness around the potosphere. So thank you. Okay, but enough of me yammering. Right now we have to get on with our chapter because, oh my goodness, this chapter. This is the chapter you've been waiting for. You may not have known it, but you were waiting for it. And you'll understand why I say that very, very soon. There is almost nothing that I need to hit preemptively in this chapter, except perhaps the word tippet, <laughs> which makes me so happy because in the very first What Would Madame Defarge Knit book, we have a tippet pattern. And here, tippets are referred to <laughs> as uh, as part of the garb that poor, kind of sad, Medora Manson wears. Our tippet in the first Defarge book, uh, designed by Andy Smith and Shannon Oki, the fabulous Andy Smith, who you heard on this on uh, Craftlet, that uh, she just released a book called Bigfoot Knit. So if you're a knitter, but you listen to just the books, you might want to go back into... Mm, early August and listen to the interview with Andy Smith, early August, 2013. Uh, the tippet in the Defarge book is for Jane Fairfax from Emma. And so it is quite lovely and knit actually with some of the most amazing, amazing yarn. So that, that is something to go take a look at. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. So the only other thing to let you know about before we listen is that this is the end of book one. I know. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, book one? What do you mean book one? I didn't know there was more than one book. I thought there was just The Age of Innocence, which is true. But Edith Wharton divided the book into two pieces. We are just past center. So it's like the first half and the second half. Or if you ever saw Into the Woods, there's the beginning, and then there's the what happens after the happily ever after, which is not entirely unlike the way this has been divided. So without making you wait any longer, but oh my goodness, do we need to talk on the end? I'm about to play you chapter 18 of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, as read to you by Brenda Dane. Chapter 18 What are you two plotting together, Aunt Medora? Madame Olenska cried as she came into the room. She was dressed as if for a ball. Everything about her shimmered and glimmered softly, as if her dress had been woven out of candle beams, and she carried her head high, like a pretty woman challenging a room full of rivals. We were saying, my dear, that here was something beautiful to surprise you with the Marchioness rejoined, rising to her feet and pointing archly to the flowers. Madame Olenska stopped short and looked at the bouquet. Her color did not change, but a sort of white radiance of anger ran over her like a summer lightning. Ah! she exclaimed, in a shrill voice that the young man had never heard. 
Who is ridiculous enough to send me a bouquet? Why a bouquet? And why tonight, of all nights? I am not going to a ball. I am not a girl engaged to be married. But some people are always ridiculous. She turned back to the door, opened it, and called out, Nastasia! The ubiquitous handmaiden promptly appeared, and Archer heard Madame Olenska say, in an Italian that she seemed to pronounce with intentional deliberateness, in order that he might follow it, Here, throw this into the dustbin, and then, as Nastasia stared protestingly, But no, it's not the fault of the poor flowers. Tell the boy to carry them to the house, three doors away, the house of Mr. Winsett, the dark gentleman who dined here. His wife is ill. They may give her pleasure. The boy is out, you say? Then, my dear one, run yourself. Here, put my cloak over you and fly. I want the thing out of the house immediately. And as you live, don't say they come from me. She flung her velvet opera cloak over the maid's shoulders and turned back into the drawing-room, shutting the door sharply. Her bosom was rising high under its lace, and for a moment Archer thought she was about to cry, but she burst into a laugh instead and looked from the marchioness to Archer, asked abruptly, "'And you two have made friends?' "'It's for Mr. Archer to say, darling,' he was waiting patiently while you were dressing. "'Yes, I gave you time enough. My hair wouldn't go,' Madame Olenska said, raising her hand to the heaped-up curls of her chignon." But that reminds me, I see Dr. Carver is gone, and you'll be late at the Blankers. Mr. Archer, will you put my aunt in the carriage? She followed the marchioness into the hall, saw her fitted into a miscellaneous heap of overshoes, shawls, and tippets, and called from the doorstep, Mind, the carriage is going to be back for me at ten. Then she turned to the drawing-room, where Archer, on re-entering it, found her standing by the mantelpiece, examining herself in the mirror. It was not usual in New York society for a lady to address her parlor-maid as my dear one and send her out on an errand wrapped in her own opera cloak. And Archer, through all his deeper feelings, tasted the pleasurable excitement of being in a world where action followed an emotion with such Olympian speed. Madame Olenska did not move when he came up behind her, and for a second their eyes met in the mirror, then she turned, threw herself into a sofa corner, and sighed out, There's time for a cigarette. He handed her the box and lit a spill for her, and as the flame flashed up into her face, she glanced at him with laughing eyes and said, What do you think of me in a temper? Archer paused a moment, then he answered with sudden resolution, It makes me understand what your aunt has been saying about you. I knew she'd been talking about me. Well? She said you were used to all kinds of things, splendors and amusements and excitements, that we could never hope to give you here. Madame Olenska smiled faintly into the circle of smoke about her lips. Medora is incorrigibly romantic. It has made up to her for so many things. Archer hesitated again and again took his risk. Is your aunt's romanticism always consistent with accuracy? You mean, does she speak the truth? Her niece considered. Well, I'll tell you. In almost everything she says, there's something true and something untrue. But why do you ask? What has she been telling you? He looked away, into the fire, and then back at her shining presence. 
His heart tightened with the thought that this was their last evening by that fireside, and that, in a moment, the carriage would come to carry her away. She says, she pretends that Count Olensky has asked her to persuade you to go back to him. Madame Olenska made no answer. She sat motionless, holding her cigarette in her half-lifted hand. The expression of her face had not changed, and Archer remembered that he had before noticed her apparent incapacity for surprise. You knew then? he broke out. She was silent for so long that the ash dropped from her cigarette. She brushed it to the floor. She has hinted about a letter, poor darling, Medora's hints. Is it at your husband's request that she has arrived here suddenly? Madame Olenska seemed to consider this question also. There again, one can't tell. She told me she had had a spiritual summons, whatever that is, from Dr. Carver. I'm afraid she's going to marry Dr. Carver. Poor Medora, there's always someone she wants to marry, but perhaps the people in Cuba just got tired of her. I think she was with them as sort of a paid companion. Really, I don't know why she came. But you do believe she has a letter from your husband? Again, Madame Olenska brooded silently, and then she said, After all, it was to be expected. The young man rose and went to lean against the fireplace. A sudden restlessness possessed him, and he was tongue-tied by the sense that their minutes were numbered, and that at any moment he might hear the wheels of the returning carriage. You know that your aunt believes you will go back. Madame Olenska raised her head quickly. A deep blush rose to her face and spread over her neck and shoulders. She blushed seldom and painfully, as if it hurt her like a burn. Many cruel things have been believed of me, she said. Oh, Ellen, forgive me. I'm a fool and a brute. She smiled a little. You are horribly nervous. You have your own troubles. I know you think the Wellens are unreasonable about your marriage, and of course I agree with you. In Europe, people don't understand our long American engagements. I suppose they are not as calm as we are. She pronounced the we with a faint emphasis, that gave it an ironic sound. Archer felt the irony, but did not dare to take it up. After all, she had purposely deflected the conversation from her own affairs, and after the pain his last words had evidently caused her, he felt that all he could do was to follow her lead. But the sense of the waning hour made him desperate. He could not bear the thought that a barrier of words should drop between them again. Yes, he said abruptly. I went south to ask May to marry me after Easter. There's no reason why we shouldn't be married then. And May adores you, and yet you couldn't convince her? I thought her too intelligent to be the slave of such absurd superstitions. She is too intelligent. She's not their slave. Madame Olenska looked at him. Well, then, I don't understand. Archer reddened and hurried on with a rush. We had a frank talk, almost the first. She thinks my impatience a bad sign. Merciful heavens, a bad sign? 
She thinks it means that I can't trust myself to go on caring for her. She thinks, in short, that I want to marry her at once to get away from someone that I care for more. Madame Olenska examined this curiously. But if she thinks that, why isn't she in a hurry, too? Because she's not like that. She's so much nobler. She insists all the more on the long engagement to give me time. Time to give her up for the other woman. If I want to. Madame Olenska leaned towards the fire and gazed into it with fixed eyes. Down the quiet street, Archer heard the approaching trot of her horses. That is noble, she said, with a slight break in her voice. Yes, but it's ridiculous. Ridiculous? Because you don't care for anyone else. Because I don't mean to marry anyone else. Ah. There was another long interval. At length, she looked up at him and asked, This other woman, does she love you? Oh, there's no other woman. I mean, the person that May was thinking of is, was never... Then why, after all, are you in such haste? There's your carriage, said Archer. She half rose and looked about her with absent eyes. Her fan and gloves lay on the sofa beside her, and she picked them up mechanically. Yes, I suppose I must be going. You're going to Mrs. Struthers's? Yes. She smiled and added, I must go where I'm invited, or I should be too lonely. Why not come with me? Archer felt that, at any cost, he must keep her beside him, must make her give him the rest of her evening. Ignoring her question, he continued to lean against the chimney-piece, his eyes fixed on the hand in which she held her gloves and fan, as if watching to see if he had the power to make her drop them. "'May guessed the truth,' he said. "'There is another woman, but not the one she thinks.' Ellen Olenska made no answer and did not move, after a moment, he sat down beside her and, taking her hand, softly unclasped it so that the gloves and fan fell on the sofa between them. She started up and, freeing herself from him, moved away to the other side of the hearth. Oh, don't make love to me. Too many people have done that, she said, frowning. Archer, changing color, stood up also, it was the bitterest rebuke she could have given him. I have never made love to you, he said, and I never shall. But you are the woman I would have married if it had been possible for either of us. Possible for either of us? She looked at him with unfeigned astonishment. And you say that when it's you who've made it impossible. He stared at her, groping in blackness through which a single arrow of light tore its blinding way. I've made it impossible. You, 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 she cried, her lip trembling like a child's on the verge of tears. Isn't it you 
who made me give up divorcing, give it up because you showed me how selfish and wicked it was, how one must sacrifice oneself to preserve the dignity of marriage and to spare one's family, the publicity, the scandal. And because my family was going to be your family for May's sake and for yours, I did what you told me, what you proved to me that I ought to do. I've made no secret of having done it for you. She sank down on the sofa again, crouching among the festive ripples of her dress, like a stricken masquerader. And the young man stood by the fireplace and continued to gaze at her without moving. Good God, he groaned. When I thought, you thought. Oh, don't ask me what I thought. Still looking at her, he saw the same burning flush creep up her neck to her face. She sat upright, facing him with a rigid dignity. I do ask you. Well, then, there were things in that letter that you asked me to read. My husband's letter, yes. I had nothing to fear from that letter, absolutely nothing. All I feared was to bring notoriety, scandal on the family, on you and May. Good God. The silence that followed lay on them with the weight of things final and irrevocable. It seemed to Archer to be crushing him down like his own gravestone. In all the wide future he saw nothing that would ever lift that load from his heart. He did not move from his place or raise his head from his hands. His hidden eyeballs went on staring into utter darkness. At least I loved you he brought out. On the other side of the hearth, from the sofa corner, where he supposed that she still crouched, he heard a faint, stifled crying like a child's. He started up and came to her side. Ellen, what madness! Why are you crying? Nothing's done that can't be undone. I'm still free, and you're going to be. He had her in his arms, her face like a wet flower at his lips, and all their vain terrors shriveling up like ghosts at sunrise. The one thing that astonished him now was that he should have stood for five minutes arguing with her across the width of the room when just touching her made everything so simple. She gave him back all his kiss, but after a moment he felt her stiffening in his arms, and she pushed him aside and stood up. Ah, oh, my poor Newland. I suppose this had to be, but it doesn't in the least alter things, she said, looking down at him in her turn from the hearth. It alters the whole of life for me. No, no, it mustn't. It can't. You're engaged to May Welland, and I'm married. He stood up, too, "'Flushed and resolute. Nonsense! It's too late for that sort of thing. "'We've no right to lie to other people or to ourselves. "'We won't talk of your marriage, but do you see me marrying May after this?' "'She stood silent, resting her thin elbows on the mantelpiece, "'her profile reflected in the glass behind her. "'One of the locks of her chignon had become loosened and hung on her neck. "'She looked haggard and almost old.' I don't see you, she said at length, putting that question to May. Do you?
He gave a reckless shrug. It's too late to do anything else. You say that because it's the easiest thing to say at this moment, not because it's true. In reality, it's too late to do anything but what we'd both decided on. Oh, I don't understand you. She forced a pitiful smile that pinched her face instead of smoothing it. You don't understand, because you haven't yet guessed how you've changed things for me. Oh, from the first, long before I knew all you'd done. All I'd done. Yes, I was perfectly unconscious at first that people here were shy of me, that they thought I was a dreadful sort of person. It seems they had even refused to meet me at dinner. I found that out afterwards. And how you'd made your mother go with you to the Vanderloydens, and how you'd insisted on announcing your engagement at the Beaufort Ball so that I might have two families to stand by me instead of one. At that he broke into a laugh. Just imagine, she said, how stupid and unobservant I was. I knew nothing of all this till Granny blurted it out one day. New York simply meant peace and freedom to me. It was coming home, and I was so happy to be among my own people that everyone I met seemed good and kind and glad to see me. But from the very beginning, she continued, I felt there was no one as kind as you, no one who gave me reasons that I understood for doing what at first seemed so hard and unnecessary. The very good people didn't convince me. I felt they'd never been tempted. But you knew. You understood. You had felt the world outside tugging at one with all its golden hands, and yet you hated the things it asks of one. You hated happiness bought by disloyalty and cruelty and indifference. That was what I'd never known before, and it's better than anything I've ever known. She spoke in a low voice, without tears, or visible agitation, and each word as it dropped from her fell into his breast like burning lead. He sat, bowed over, his head between his hands, staring at the hearth rug and at the tip of the satin shoe that showed under her dress. Suddenly he knelt down and kissed the shoe. She bent over him, laying her hands on his shoulders, and looking at him with eyes so deep that he remained motionless under her gaze. Ah, oh, don't let us undo what you've done, she cried. I can't go back now to that other way of thinking. I can't love you unless I give you up. His arms were yearning up to her, but she drew away, and they remained facing each other, divided by the distance that her words had created. Then, abruptly, his anger overflowed, and Beaufort, is he to replace me? As the words sprang out, he was prepared for an answering flare of anger, and he would have welcomed it as fuel for his own. But Madame Olenska only grew a shade paler, and stood with her arms hanging down before her, her head slightly bent, as her way was when she pondered a question. He's waiting for you now at Mrs. Struthers's. Why don't you go to him? Archer sneered. She turned to ring the bell. I shall not go out this evening. Tell the carriage to go and fetch the Signora Marchesa, she said when the maid came. 
After the door had closed again, Archer continued to look at her with bitter eyes. Why this sacrifice? Since you tell me that you're lonely, I've no right to keep you from your friends. She smiled a little under her wet lashes. I shan't be lonely now. I was lonely. I was afraid. But the emptiness and the darkness are gone. When I turn back into myself now, I'm like a child, going at night, into a room where there's always a light. Her tone and her look still enveloped her in a soft inaccessibility, and Archer groaned out again, I don't understand you, yet you understand May. He reddened under the retort, but kept his eye on her. May is ready to give me up. What? Three days after you've entreated her on your knees to hasten your marriage. She's refused. That gives me the right. Oh, you've taught me what an ugly word that is, she said. He turned away with a sense of utter weariness. He felt as though he had been struggling for hours up the face of a steep precipice, and now, just as he had fought his way to the top, his hold had given way and he was pitching down headlong into darkness. If he could have got her in his arms again, he might have swept away her arguments. But she still held him at a distance by something inscrutably aloof in her look and attitude and by his own awed sense of her sincerity. At length he began to plead again, if we do this now, it will be worse afterwards, worse for everyone. No, no, she almost screamed, as if he frightened her. At that moment the bell sent a long tinkle through the house. They had heard no carriage stopping at the door, and they stood motionless, looking at each other with startled eyes. Outside, Nastasia's step crossed the hall. The outer door opened, and a moment later she came in carrying a telegram, which she handed to the Countess Olenska. The lady was very happy at the flowers, Nastasia said, smoothing her apron. She thought it was her signor marito who had sent them, and she cried a little and said it was folly. Her mistress smiled and took the yellow envelope. She tore it open and carried it to the lamp. Then, when the door had closed again, she handed the telegram to Archer. It was dated from St. Augustine, and addressed to the Countess Olenska. In it he read, Granny's telegram successful. Papa and Mama agree marriage after Easter. I'm telegraphing Newland. I'm too happy for words and love you dearly. You're grateful. May. Half an hour later, when Archer unlocked his own front door, he found a similar envelope on the hall table, on top of his pile of notes and letters. The message inside the envelope was also from May Welland and ran as follows. Parents consent wedding Tuesday after Easter at 12, Grace Church, eight bridesmaids, please see rector, so happy, love, May. Archer crumpled up the yellow sheet as if the gesture could annihilate the news it contained. Then he pulled out a small pocket diary and turned over the pages with trembling fingers. But he did not find what he wanted, and cramming the telegram into his pocket, he mounted the stairs. 
A light was shining through the door of the little hall room which served Janie as a dressing room and boudoir, and her brother rapped impatiently on the panel. The door opened, and his sister stood before him in her immemorial purple flannel dressing gown, with her hair on pins. Her face looked pale and apprehensive. Newland, I hope there's no bad news in that telegram. I waited on purpose in case. No item of his correspondence was safe from Janie. He took no notice of her question. Look here. What day is Easter this year? She looked shocked at such an unchristian ignorance. Easter? Newland? Why, of course, the first week in April. Why? The first week. He turned again to the pages of his diary, calculating rapidly under his breath. The first week, did you say? He threw back his head with a long laugh. For mercy's sake, what's the matter? Nothing's the matter except that I'm going to be married in a month. Janie fell upon his neck and pressed him to her purple flannel breast. Oh, Newland, how wonderful! I'm so glad. But, dearest, why do you keep on laughing? Do hush or you'll wake Mama. End of Book One So when was the first moment that your reaction was, Oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding. I'm trying to remember the first time that I, that I listened to the story and, and pinpoint the moment where I realized that the two of them, Newland and Ellen, had completely miscommunicated, not because they had miscommunicated so much as just non-communicated. And that it was, you know, the, the upbringing that Newland had made it clear to him that he was reading all of the signs correctly and that the letter from Ellen's husband meant one thing and never thought to talk to the woman to find out what was really going on. And of course, it's his training. It's got very little to do with him as a person. And Ellen's whole world has everything to do with her training. And her training has been very odd and very, we'll use the word foreign, to Newland. Uh, and I, I, I found it... The scene is heartbreaking, and it's heartbreaking, obviously, on so many levels. There are very few moments that I will pinpoint in film as having uh, transcended what a book was capable of doing. There are, I've mentioned the movie before on the podcast, there are a couple of moments, actually, I think, in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, where as much uh, a pathos as the book is capable of wrangling and as many tears as it's capable of drawing out of me. Uh, the movie the movie hits a couple of them, I think, better than the book does. And that's because movies are a visual medium. And you have the added advantage of the score and the costuming and the lighting. And you know, you have so much more that's brought to bear on you in a film than you do in a book. 
And of course, that's not giving books short shrift at all, because books are the interaction between our uh, imagination and the writer's words on the page. And if the writer does a good job, they are able to kind of create this alchemical bond between the reader and the text. And, and the reader is able to experience something, you hope, transcendent. And, and when books are very, very good, that's what happens. When books are just simply good, then we just simply have a good time reading a good story. There is a bit in this chapter right before she says, oh, don't make love to me. And Newland says, I've never made love to you. Uh, there's a moment where he takes her hand and he unclasps her hand. He, he un, unclenches her hand, really, but clench is too masculine a word for the situation. And her, her gloves and her fan fall off, fall out. And, uh, and that's when she re- reacts. In the movie, uh, because as a an acting teacher of mine once described, when you're on stage in a theater, your actions must be big and broad. They must read to the last row of the uppermost balcony, and people have to be able to see and understand exactly what it is that you are doing and communicating in your physical motion. So, for example, if you are going to, to try and emote or uh, allow the audience to see that you are feeling frustration and anger, you might, for example, pick up a pencil and snap it over your knee. And that action would be big enough, even though it's a small thing, a pencil, it would be big enough because it's over your knee, you have to lift your knee, you have to snap it across your knee, you have to have your, both hands come apart, that the the people furthest away from you would be able to probably hear, but definitely understand what it was that you were saying physically. Well, the, the lens of a camera in film is much closer to the actors. And so therefore, by definition, the actor's motions must be contained within that lens frame. So if the camera is on a close-up or God forbid, an ECU, an extreme close-up, and you are uh, being watched that carefully by a lens, your actions must be much smaller in order to create the same effect. Therefore, uh, instead of snapping the pencil across your knee, you might have the pencil in your fist and grasp it tighter and tighter and tighter so the camera can see your knuckles turning white with rage and anger. And that's all it takes to communicate exactly the same thing. Books and movies are obviously different, but in the book... Newland opens her hand and her fan and her gloves fall out. There is a moment in the film, much later in the film, where Newland undoes a button on the inside wrist of Ellen's glove. And I cannot think of anything more provocative, maybe even erotic, that I have seen in a film, certainly not a film set in Victorian anywhere, but just a, 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 a film in general, then that one motion. And I think that that's, that's really one of the things that fascinates me so much about this book, because nothing happens, right? So far, I mean, we're halfway through the book. What has happened? Uh, 
Newland is in love with two people. Wow, bummer. And yet, the writing is so beautiful, and the tension is so tense. And and at the end of this section, the fall is so heartbreaking. And so here we are at the end of book one, about to start book two, and you think, well, what's left to happen now? And of course, what's left to happen now is a wedding. And on that note, I leave you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up